0: Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts.
1: Hello, my name is Jared Williams and welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. Uh, I'm thrilled today uh, to have Dr. Gal Kelmer uh, from Israel. Uh, He is a surgeon at the Kret School of Veterinary Medicine at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And he's going to talk with us about small intestinal interceptions in horses. Uh, He did a multi-center retrospective report on a number of cases over the past decade. It's an original article in EVE, and I encourage you to go and find that and have that in front of you as you're listening to this, or just sit back and enjoy the conversation. So, Dr. Kelmer, thank you very much for being here. We really appreciate it. It's great to see you. How are things?
0: Oh, great. Thank you, Jared. Thanks to EVE for the opportunity to present, you know, our results uh, things are good, busy with Corona, like uh, like most places.
1: Yeah, that's it. it you would have thought that um, you know maybe a pandemic would slow down veterinary medicine, but it seems globally everybody is busy and seeing more horses than they can handle, and and are desperate for help as well. You know, we just can't get enough uh, good people to to help out. It's a good problem to have, but a frustrating one. So tell me a little bit um, about your background. How did you end up where you are now?
0: So I, I studied here veterinary medicine here in Israel at the Koret School, the same school that I'm at for the last decade. Um, and I did my internship in large animal of equine. Here it's large animal, it's uh, over 90% equine. Um, and I was really fortunate I, I have no I had no idea about residency or specialties or anything. I just knew that I wanted to do to be better at equine medicine, especially in surgery. Um, so I went to the US and Canada to just observe and see clinics and then I found out about the matching program and I applied with my only sole year, my internship from the from Israel for a little place and I was just fortunate enough to get the residency and and became a surgeon. After that, uh, I came back here to Israel and developed the, the equine department.
1: You and I have uh, a similar path in life. That This is aside from the article, but I'm just curious about how it was for you, and that is, is you ended up as a faculty member at the same place that you did vet veterinary school, mm-hmm. and I did the same at the University of Georgia. So there's a moment at which you're a student learning from all of these people that um, you know, you looked up to and and then all of a sudden your colleagues and you have this like feeling of do I fit in, do I belong? you know yeah. it's you always kind of feel like you're the student a little bit.
0: How was that experience for you? Yeah, no, I agree, I agree. Uh, definitely, in the beginning it it had such a <laughs> it seemed like that it's kind of odd to come and start working and being a colleague with the people that actually you know thought you were a student. <laughs> So it was a little bit odd in the beginning.
1: Tell me a little bit about um, equine veterinary medicine uh, in Israel. I know you're at the, the correct school, but tell me about a little bit about that program and what other uh, large referral hospitals are kind of in your area.
0: In Israel, we have, nobody knows exactly, but probably about 40,000 horses, something like that. Um there is no racing, so the, the, it's mostly uh, amateur show. A lot of Arabian show horses. That are, that's the population that we see most, and then other small English riders and some uh, jumping, some endurance, and a lot of pleasure riders. Uh, and uh, we have about forty, about forty to fifty ambulatory vets. Um, and I'm a member of the, the you know, the committee that arranged the, the CE for them and stuff, so we, we do some work with that. Um, and there is really, there's one um, clinic in the north that has a hospital, not a hospital, but they have a clinic, and they do some surgeries. They have no, you know, they don't have a board-certified surgery or anesthesiologist, but they do some surgeries there. But we're the only real uh, referral center. In Israel. So everybody everybody that works ambulatory works outside send the horses to us when, when they need to.
1: And are you guys the only uh, veterinary school in Israel?
0: Yep. Yeah. Yes, we're the only vet school. And you know, it started with 20 students a year. And my class was the first one that had 30. And uh, now there are 60 to 60, about 60 students. And actually, this year, there's a, there's a, they wish to enlarge it to 75, but it's going to be difficult on the school to have, you know, a school that's based on 20, 30 students to have 75 students. It's not easy.
1: No, it isn't. we We've been slowly increasing our caseload as well over the years. You know, I graduated, um, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago, and our class was in the 80s. And in a matter of a decade and a half, we're up to 150. You know, and Wow. Wow. The infrastructure hasn't changed a ton, you know. The classrooms are the same size. You, know, you just have to modify and and make it work. So let's get into um, a little bit of, of how this paper came about. Tell me a little bit about your professional interests. You know, what sort of cases do you like to see and do you work with, and um, and what do you like to to research?
0: Uh, that's a wide question. Um... But I actually stayed pretty much the same, you know, like everybody thinks he looks the same as he looked 20 years ago. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, my interest really hasn't changed. Uh, I was always interested in both soft tissue and orthopedic. And, and I still, I'm really excited to get elective uh, arthroscopy. But I'm still really happy to come in the middle of the night and do a colic surgery. I'm still excited about the results, and I'm curious about what's the lesion. and. So I really like I like uh, the variety, and I'm I really enjoy that we do have the luxury to have that variety, you know, in as as, a, as opposed to human surgeons, you know, when the controversial kids are uh, the wrist or the shoulder or the nose, or you know, I really enjoy the variety that we can do different things in different days. Uh, so I don't have a specific. I don't you know I, I haven't got tired of uh, colics or or urethral or you know. So I'm still I'm still really enjoying all of it and enjoy teaching hopefully doing all of them but uh, but colleagues t- is really uh, something that I'm uh, specifically interested in trying to find better solutions uh, especially with uh, regard to the you know with complications to try and decrease the, the amount of complications that we see um, so it's intriguing to me to find lesions that are not uh, commonly reported and see that actually they happen which is you know, we don't actually see reports like at the time some diaphragmatic hernia was considered something, ah, it happened in dogs, hit by a cow, very famous, very common, but it doesn't happen in horses. But it does. It just not wasn't reported many years ago. But now it's obvious that it's like maybe between half and one percent of colleagues are actually diaphragmatic hernia. It's something we don't hear about. So similar with interception, it's something we hear about or we know when we study about it, you know, the secum, the secum, but Small intestinal interception by itself is not something that is considered common or, or actually happening in any kind of uh, recurrence, and, and apparently it does. So, so it's interesting, cool. I, I think.
1: Perfect, and that's a great lead-in. You're right. You know, um, I would say the majority—not the majority, but a good bit of the interceptions that we'll see here do involve the cecum, but that doesn't mean that they have to involve the cecum. And I'm I'm thrilled that you put this original article together. Cause it just kind of sheds light onto, yeah, sure. It's uncommon, but it's common enough to talk about, you know, it's not like you're going to see one uh, only in your life and that's it. You know, and when you start to put a string of them together, even if they're uncommon, you sit there and you ask well, how should they do? What should they look like? What should be my expectations? How do I guide my conversation with owners and things like that? So if you could, uh, quickly, just give us, a uh, a little bit of a definition, a medical terminology, what exactly is an intersusception?
0: An intersusception is actually much easier to view than to understand by uh, vocalization or listening to. But an intersusception is when you have uh, one piece of bowel uh, that actually uh, is inserted completely into another piece of bowel, uh, and it can be just one centimeter long than just one centimeter protrusion of one piece of bowel, which is the intersuseptum, to another piece of bowel that encompasses it, which is the intersuscipient, or the recipient's uh, portion. And so it can be just a little bit of bowel, that's one centimeter of overlap, or it can be a few meters, all the way, or a few meters of bowel that is actually, you can see, if you look at it ultrasonographically, you can see four layers instead of two layers, because you see, both the intercipients and the interceptum at the same location. So if you look at the transverse cut of it, you can see folders one inside the other. That's what we uh, describe as the bull's eye or the target eye, classically ultrasonographically.
1: And for those that are, have the paper in front of them or want to go back and look at it, you'll get an idea of what this looks like uh, by looking at figure two. It's a great picture of an interception in place. So tell me a little bit about what initiated um, this retrospective and how you were able to put it together, how you were able to get this number of cases um, and what the inclusion criteria to be in in this retrospective study was or were, I should say.
0: Um, The the incentive was that uh, I just had a, a couple of cases in a row, and that's how you know usually it happens with uh, with what we call odd cases or uncommon cases. You know, suddenly when you have two in a row, say, so, hey, well, wow, this actually happened, and then you start looking back and then uh, see that actually you did have the one year ago, and then you had a couple years before, and and starting to collect them, and so I found that we have them, and uh, and I, I took down the secon because the sicum having a jejuno ileal inter, um, interception is uncommon having a ileocecal or jejuno ileocecal then you know it's reported maybe not enough but it is reported and it's well known and it's documented but only small intestine excluding the sicum, wasn't really reported that's why i concentrated on that um and i just was uh, lucky to have a uh, an opportunity to do a locum in uh, Australia and I uh, talked to the surgeons there and they said, yeah, we did have some. And, and then uh, I was in contact with, with uh, Tim Meyer, with uh, Professor Meyer, which is, has an uh, extensive experience and knowledge. And he also said, yeah, we did have some. So I tried to, to collect cases together.
1: Great. So, um, so it looks like you are, you collaborated with three schools. Is that correct? Three schools, uh, or three hospitals is probably a better way of putting it. Um, and collectively you guys came up with 26 cases over 11 years. Uh, and all of these cases were exclusively small intestinal in a So those that do not involve the cecum, um, Tell us a little bit about, um, I guess we'll just get right into the results. Tell us a little bit about the, the parameters of the horses that you found. You know, What were their age? What were their signaments? What did they do? How did they present? Things
0: like that. Um, oh, sorry. So the, we had more Arabians than others, but since we have the, the population, we had 13 of the cases. So we, we had a total of 26 cases, and half of them were from Israel. And we see our population of cases that we see, we have about 70% of the cases we see in Israel are Arabian shore horses. So it's not surprising that, them, that, that uh, Arab ho- Arabian horses were overrepresented. Um, so 26 cases, uh, 22 of them had surgery. Uh, four of them were found only post-mortem, after they died. Um, and then from the ones that were, the 22 that were in surgery, five were euthanized on the table due to lesions that seems seemed uh, extensive, or some, some of it had to do with their financial uh, limitations. Um, and then from these 22 horses um, that had surgery, uh, so 17 were actually continued, the surgery was continued uh, nine by manual reduction and eight by resection uh, and anastomosis um, so that, that's the the basic of the the basic um, report on the results um, there was only actually um, three horses that had uh, the ileum was was it the jejunum and ileum one that was only ileum and the vast majority, 18, had the juno Juno uh, interception. Mm-hmm. They had um, a significant amount of complications. When you look at the results, you know complications are not uncommon, but having nearly 50% or 40, 47% of, compl- of horses having complications is, mm-hmm. is more than usual, it's more than the typical horse, or the typical, sorry, post-operative uh, colic. Uh, but that's that's what we had. So that's something to expect when you have, seems like something to expect when you have a small intestine interception uh, to expect having more complications that you used to with other lesions.
1: As far as the diagnosis goes, you know, um, my experience, these patients are usually pretty, well, some of them seem to be in a lot of pain. Some of them seem to be in mild pain. Uh, it, I guess it kind of depends on how much bowel is going through and, and the stretch on the mesentery, among other things. Um, they tend, I always thought in their head, they tend to have kind of two populations of ages, the very young and the very old, if there's a tumor associated with it or something like Mm. that. I don't know. It looks like in your study, they're all pretty young, right? The mean, um, the median age of the horses was about nine months. So why do you think, uh, you saw the majority of them in younger horses? What do you think is the cause of it?
0: we actually had two predisposing factors that we found one was very common very known sorry so um diarrhea is a common knowledge that it is a predisposing factor for interception it is like that in dogs uh, i believe in people and and it's we found it to be a, a definite risk factor then you know young folks are more prone to have diarrhea and we did not see it in colitis horses, so it's not the diarrhea that we see in adult horses, but seems to be the diarrhea that we have in, in uh, youngsters. Um, and uh, the other thing that we found as a risk factor it's something that, at least to the best of my knowledge, not really reported before, definitely not in horses, and that's anesthesia. So, uh, so what and what diarrhea does is you have hypermotility, right? You, you hear more sound, more intestinal sound when you listen, when you ascultate, and you have definitely hypermotility, and that's a risk factor, a known risk factor. But what we found is that anesthesia, which slows down, you know, have hypermotility, it's also a risk factor. We had several cases that immediately after anesthesia developed interception, I remember specifically one of the, the cases that when I, uh, many years ago that had, um, we did a um and under general anesthesia, which I hardly do now, but it was under general. And um, we took uh, the horse out and in the recovery box, he, he showed extremely acute colic um, and we took him took him in and he had an interception of a small intestine just to the genome. Which obviously wasn't there before the anesthesia, um, and we had a few falls like that when we had uh, surgery for enphalloectomy, and they did fine. They looked fine. We we don't run the bowel on on, on We try actually not to see the bowel even we block the the abdomen so not to cause adhesions. But immediately after enphalloectomy, that we found a few of them that had developed a, uh, interception, and actually after we. We had those cases. Uh, after we actually started writing, and after the the paper got advanced, we had a few cases of uh, neonate. So I, I'm actually thinking about that they're a little bit of a separate group. And uh, we had a few cases uh, of neonatal interception. That it's something, I think it's something a little bit more specific that's worthwhile, uh, you know, reporting just on neonate. It's a little bit different.
1: How many of these cases were you confident it was an intussusception preoperatively uh, versus finding it intraoperatively? And um, as a lead into your answer, I just want to let the audience know, if you have the paper in front of you, uh, go to figure one, because uh, there's a great image of the, the classic ultrasound lesion that you talk about, a, a target lesion. Um, but whether you can find it or not is always uh a different story. So how many of them did you know going into surgery? I, I think there's a great chance this is an inception, or I know it's an interception.
0: Um, hmm. I am not sure. Um, in the falls, it seems like we consistently find them, you know, when the horse is, is young and you can have a really complete evaluation of the abdomen ultrasonographically. Um, then, then you can see them. But the diag, the final diagnosis here was was in surgery or postmortem. But in the falls, we found uh, many of them, at least in the ones that we had here. Uh, let's see with the um, with the results um, in the study. So fifty percent, the ultrasound was suspicious uh, in our cases. It's less than what uh, you think about clinically. You know when you think about them uh about those cases when it's uh when it's clear it's so obvious you know when the lesion is just jumping in your face it's, oh yeah it's interception um but only 50 percent in the of the cases that we reported here were actually we were able to to diagnose it preoperatively um one thing to mention i think is uh, is that there is a report on interception that you can find ultrasonographically that does not necessarily have a pathological significance, which is something to cons- consider in neonates. Now, in neonates, um, if you just do screen the abdomen, sometimes you can get a classic interception, but without clinical signs. So it doesn't mean that you need to run into surgery and remove that bowel, or, because if you, you may look at it half an hour later, and, and it'd be gone, and without any clinical signs. Yeah,
1: that's a great point. Um, And it's one that, you know, when you see it on ultrasound, um, you're right, you take them to surgery based on the clinical signs, not necessarily an ultrasonographic finding per se. Uh, What were some of the clinical signs on those that you were suspicious of or those that you couldn't even find the ultrasonographic lesion that made you take them to surgery? Was it pain or did a lot of these cases have abnormal belly taps and that's what made you take them to surgery? Um, Did you find classic belly tap changes with cases that have intussusceptions, et cetera?
0: The clinical signs that led us to surgery were mostly pain and and distension. Um, So in neonates, yes, the the ultrasound was more helpful. And in adults, it was helpful. It was not always specific. You know, if you can't find it, but you can find small intestinal distension like any other colleague, if you have bowel that is not moving and is distended in the small intestine, then it's a, it, it was an indication for surgery. Um, I, I do less, uh, I use less the, the abdominal tap than we used before. Um, so a lot of those horses did not have an abdominal tap because if clinically we decided they need surgery, then then I don't think the tap is necessary. I, I use the tap these days only for cases that are in between. If it's clearly medical, then I don't want to intervene, and if it's clearly surgical, then it's a waste of time. So, only on cases that really, if you're not sure, or they're in the gray zone, they're a little bit painful but not very painful, or you know that you're not sure if they need surgery, then then the, uh, the abdominal tap uh, helpful. But there's no, I, we didn't see any specific uh, signs in the in the, the ones that had abdominal tap. Nothing was specific. At f- uh, interception you know it was just an abnormal abnormal tab they'd say okay the bowel the, the is suffering but nothing specific um, the systemically the the elevated level of lactate was was um, an indication of worsening prognosis so if the lactate was very high uh, the prognosis uh, was lower but it's even that that is not specific also you know the, the elevated lactate is is a measurement of prognosis in other cases as well, but but it was significant here, and it's not always significant.
1: In your report, the the postoperative complication rate um, is is forty seven percent, which is, you know, depending on what you decide as a complication, is okay. is high or low or about what you expect. I think it's a little bit in the eye of the beholder on what you're calling it. You know, it's bottom line is is you don't walk out of surgery and they never look back and they never have a single issue. There's, there's something that you're thinking about, which that's kind of the case with a lot of colic surgeries. Um, You know, and some of the complications that you talk about are ileus, diarrhea and and colic. And in particular, I think anyone who does colic surgery knows that the bane of colic surgery is if a horse colics after colic surgery, (laughs) you know, there's nothing more frustrating. You're like, I was just in there. And for these cases, I can see, that frustration even more because you're talking about some of the, the predisposing things and factors are diarrhea and and, and you're not going to fix that intraoperatively. So you fix the lesion, but the cause of the lesion likely persists postoperatively. So how many of these cases did you feel like re after surgery, or were you worried that they re and that was their cause of colic? How do you how do you handle a post-op colic that colics in this subset of, of cases?
0: Yes, I agree. It's very frustrating to get out of colic surgery and having the horse colic. It's uh, extremely frustrating, and you don't always know exactly what to do or when to do it. Uh, um, but um, we I, we didn't see a recurrence in the in the cases the in the study but like i said after that we had a few cases in neonates and again i, I think they're different somewhat because i've seen interception in neonates again in the last year two of them that intocepted immediately after i reduced them like in front of your eyes in surgery so you reduce them Everything looks fun. You put the, the, the put the the intestine in the abdomen, and then in front of your eyes, it's it does the interception again. Um, so I've seen that in more than one fall, but neonates again only neonates. Uh, but we have not seen recurrence in the cases that we had surgery. So I think it's something specifically for neonates. But it is a, because, like I said, anesthesia, general anesthesia is a risk factor, and we put them in general anesthesia for, to, to repair that lesion. So it is a, a problem. Uh, but at least uh, so far, we haven't seen that happen after anesthesia to treat the lesion. Sure.
1: You know, looking at your numbers, you know, like you said, you had 26 horses in total. Um, looks like four of them had the diagnosis at necropsy, 22 of them. Were diagnosed during surgery and uh, I want to talk about the surgical part of this the intraop part of it a little bit nine um, so anyway of the 22 five of the horses were subjected to euthanasia on the table so that that left from um, doing my math right it looks like 17 and about 50 50 on whether they needed a resection or not it looks like nine underwent manual reduction and eight underwent a resection and anastomosis. anastomosis um, Tell me a little bit about the surgical procedure. How are, how do you, what's your technique for reducing it? Um, Are you doing the resection anastomosis before it's reduced or are you reducing it and then doing the resection? A little bit about your, your techniques on, on how to handle this when you see it in front of you.
0: Um, When you see the interception, most of the time, I think you can have an idea whether it's reducible or not so the the ones that are very long and you can see already um cracks or like fissure lines in the serosa you know that and it's extremely edematous and discolored and you know that it's very unlikely that you'll be able to reduce it without um without causing a uh rupture of the bowel and then if you're not protecting the 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 abdomen enough then, then then it's a lost case so I think the one important point is to isolate the interception before you start uh, trying to reduce it. Because even if it looks okay, suddenly there's an area that is more edematous than what it looks and it can be more friable and then to open up in front of your eyes and you have spillage and then you regret that you did not isolate it. So first, before once you have the diagnosis, once you exteriorize it, I think isolating the the lesion from the bowel, from the sorry, from the abdominal cavity is important. Um, and then I start to reduce it and see how it goes. I, I reduce it with a lot of uh, uh, sodium carboxymethylcellulose cellulose, with CMC. Uh, and I think it's a good idea to push CMC actually into the lesion. You can between the layers, between the interceptum and the intercipients, You can actually push. With a broad uh, syringe, like a wide 60 cc syringe, and push it inside, and use it outside as well to lubricate, and and uh, both ways, both to uh, push and to pull both sides. Sometimes it's really easy to pull, and it's reduced, and sometimes you need to push and pull, and others are really. Seems uh, like when you start seeing the uh, the friability when it starts to break, then. I stop. I, when I see that serous uh, coming out and I'm worried that it's going to rupture, then I stop. And, I just, and on those cases, I do like an end block resection. But, uh, but in others, I reduce and look for viability. And if it's viable, then, then, uh, then just uh, uh, put it back in the abdomen.
1: And so some of these cases, you will do the resection and anastomosis with the intussusception still in place?
0: Yes, I did, I think um, one or two, yes, because when I, yes, it's just to prevent it from rupturing, uh, you know, on, on the, on the abdominal cavity, even with isolation, I'd rather not having, you know, bowel spillage on the, on the abdomen.
1: And I'm assuming in that scenario, you know, you, you probably need to do your resection on the section of bowel that's in the susceptible into the healthy bowel, you probably have to go as far up the healthy bowel as you can feel the unhealthy bowel within it. So you may end up taking, I'm guessing, a large amount of healthy bowel because you have to get beyond where the in the bowel is entrapped. Is that correct?
0: Yes, you do have to take more than you may have needed if, it, if you would be able to reduce it because you have to give up a little bit more of the healthy bowel. But, you know, we take about, you know, 20, 30 centimeter or a feet of healthy bowel ideally anyway. So I don't think it's a big deal. Uh, Usually, unless, you know, unless you're the ileum and then it (laughs) becomes problematic.
1: Is tying off the vessels of the mesentery difficult or problematic, I should say, when they are intersuscepted in that lumen as well? You know, so you there's probably parts of the vessels you can't necessarily get to to tie off
0: what do you do about those it's just from from my experience it's only that you have to go more um more proximal or more towards the root of the mesentery so you still have to be able to ligate them it's just that you, you have to ligate a larger vessel and not uh, and not after the arcuate, but before the arcuate. But it, yeah, so, it's not, uh, it, I didn't run it into, I didn't find it to be a, a problem.
1: Yeah, good. You may end up with slightly shorter mesentery than you would have ideally preferred, but it's not yeah. an issue. Yeah. yeah, good. And then um, kind of looking at how they did afterwards, it looks like 53% survived a discharge. Um, tell us a little bit about that patient population. Were these, 53% of the horses that made it off the table or 53% of your total cases that presented?
0: It's it's 53% of all the cases. So it depends how you look at it. You know, the percentage gets higher if you count only the one that recovered from anesthesia, because you had, we had five that were utilized on the table. It's It's like in other, you know, in other papers, you read that no, oh, how come the long-term survival is higher than the short-term survival? But it just depends how you calculate it. I, I, I still think it makes sense to count, uh, to the short-term survival, to count all the ones that came with that issue, and they came alive, now, obviously not counting <laughs> the ones that came dead, but all the ones that came alive, and then see how many of them discharge, and that's the 53%. And the long-term survival, I mean, we count only the ones that went home, otherwise, you know we can't count them. So nearly all of them, 92% of the one that were discharged home, uh, survived. And long term, we we went with the with the one year, like most of the studies, the one year survivors considered long term. And so I was really happy with the long term survivors because when you think about small intestine and fall and resection, you worry that you know after the 60 days or so you start seeing the adhesions and the, or, or seeing more adhesions and. But 92% for the long term, I was really satisfied with.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. And I think that's a really important point. And and this is going to be probably one of the lasting uh, memories from this paper or or the part of this paper that clinicians use the most when you're talking to referring veterinarians and, and clients and owners, and they're trying to decide what to do on a case that they don't seem that well of. You know, having something that they can reference is super important. And the way you laid this out, I think, is great. For those listening along with the paper, we're specifically looking at figure three. This is the flow chart of survival rates and it's it's exactly what you need to to, to reference and talk to clients and everybody uh, with a vested interest in the patient. If you're looking at it as as Dr. Calmer is referencing, five of the 22 were euthanized on the table. Okay, so if you can't fix it, you can't fix it. Uh, that means 17 of the 22 recovered. So if, if we're now looking at that group of 17, how did they do from the time surgery was completed? And, and, and a number of these cases just had manual reduction. Well, 14 of the 17 cases, so 82% discharged from the hospital. And considering your complication rate was almost 50%, that's great, right? Like you have 82% of your cases coming out, even though uh, a good number of them had complications. And then of those 14, you're right. 13 or 14 were alive at one year. So it it seems like if you can get them off the table, um, they got a better than 80% chance of leaving the hospital. And if they're leaving the hospital, they're probably going to go on to do well, which is super valuable because the mean, the mean age of these cases is nine months. So you're taking a young animal to surgery. That's got their whole life ahead of them. And it's a big factor. Are they going to do okay? Is it worth it? You know, that goes into it and to be frank you know, we say you have 13 or 14 that were live at one year. It's not that that other one, it's not that it could be a hundred percent. You just don't know because that one of 14 was lost to follow up. So I think the way you described it is going to be really helpful and valuable for everyone who sees these cases because we see them infrequently and we're desperate to really have true numbers to look at. So I think the way you did that's great. And I Um, I'm sure a lot of people will appreciate this chart and this paper for that reason. So kind of following this up, um, what are any important takeaways? If there was just a few boom, boom, boom points that, you know, you only had, uh, a few minutes to talk to somebody about that you'd want them to know about this paper and remember.
0: Okay. (laughs) So regarding the etiology, I think it's just important to, to take notice that general anesthesia can be a predisposing factor. We do a lot of, you know, every surgeon and every every uh, <clears throat> clinician with, with equine is familiar with general anesthesia. Just we need to consider that as one of the complications that can follow. And if we have a horse that's severely colic or had an acute colic after... A different surgery, orthopedic surgery, or what have you, then it's something to consider in the differential list that maybe has an interception of the small intestine. Um, and then that it can, the, the lesion um, is not rare, as maybe it was considered or thought of, but it, it's happening. It's not common. It's definitely uncommon, but it, hap- it happens. And so you need to be on the lookout for these cases. Um, and that once you, um, once you succeed with the surgery, so if the surgery, the, the, the horse wakes up from surgery and then the horse discharge home, then the prognosis is great for the horse to survive on the long term. And that's like you said, something is very crucial for the owners. If you recommend, say, oh, it's such an uh, uncommon problem. Maybe I should utilize it. We don't see it. You're not experienced with it. But well, if you, have a, if you see that the, le- the the conditions are good for recovering the horse from surgery, then it's likely to go home, and then, if it goes home, then the prognosis is really good to survive well afterwards. So that's really something something to take home, I think.
1: Well, great. Yeah, I really appreciate the time. Um, thank you for uh, the contribution, you know, to the literature and the contribution to EV equine veterinary education specifically, and you know, just in general. I think if anybody is listening around. If, if you're not familiar with Dr. Kelmer, uh, I encourage you to do a, just a quick Google search or a PubMed search or whatever search engine search you want. And what you'll see is uh, somebody who asked really good questions and is constantly finding valuable information that we all use in a wide variety of fields. And uh, I just want to say, you know, thank you for keep asking those questions and making it easier for us to do our jobs and giving us information to tell clients and use. You know, you're you're giving us uh thoughts that we need and i appreciate it and i think this is another perfect example of that as well as um a thank you to the other authors of the paper and the other contributing institutions i think you know the collaborative effort is really valuable and and here even more so so uh thanks again dr Kelmer. i really appreciate it
0: oh thank you as a last i'm sorry it it shouldn't be the first time but uh Dr. Rabia Haddad actually is my resident, my senior resident, and, uh, and did, uh, you know, you know like he did a lot of the work and the important work of the hard work of getting the data, analyzing the data. So really, uh, it's a great job that he did and really needs to be uh, congratulated. Just as uh, uh, the first thing to start with. <laughs> but uh, thank you, Jared. I really appreciate your, your interview.
1: All right. Thank you. All right, everyone, uh, tune in to the next one. We really appreciate you listening along, and we hope you enjoyed it. Goodbye now.
0: Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.